This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, my name is Natalie Lalagos, and in the next hour you're going to hear from me and Jonathan Medeiros about what social justice teaching and learning can look, sound, and feel like. To that end, I want to dedicate this episode to my partners at the Transformative Translation Project, which you will hear about shortly. Without these key people and our amazing multilingual students, this program would never have existed. My dedication is to Professor Scott Saft at the University of Hawaii Hilo, who has been my partner from the very beginning, and Viviana Martinez, who has led the program at Konawina High School since the first year of our pilot. Mahalo to both of you for your support and belief. everyone. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Today, my guests are Jonathan Medeiros and Natalie Lalagos. In the spirit of my episode with the folks at Embark Education in Colorado, I'm going to talk to Natalie first, then Jonathan, then I will bring them together for some reflections and final thoughts. By way of context, the Social Justice Education in Hawaii Project is a joint initiative of the Hanahaoli School Professional Development Center and the University of Hawaii at Manoa's College of Education. It is aimed at growing the capacity of local educators to inspire youth to be active participants in a diverse democracy, made possible by the generosity and forward thinking of Jana and Howard Wolf. The Social Justice Education and Hawaii Project works to ensure that more teachers, administrators, counselors, and other school practitioners have access to high quality professional development programs and resources needed for effectively carrying out social justice education initiatives in the state of Hawaii. This includes opportunities to learn more about the Southern Poverty Law Center's critically acclaimed Learning for Justice materials, resources, and professional development opportunities. Launched in 2022, a new and exciting component of the overall project is the Hawaii Social Justice Educator Award, a financial award program that aims to support the growing work of social justice educators in the 50th state. The first Social Justice in Education Award went to two remarkable educators, Natalie Lalagos, a Spanish teacher at Kealakehe High School in Kona, and Jonathan Medeiros, a language arts teacher at Kauai High School on the island of Kauai. Jonathan Medeiros is a national board certified high school teacher who has been teaching and learning about language arts and rhetoric for 17 years with students on Kauai, where he was born and raised. He and his students learn together about curiosity, community, and place. They build deeper connections to each other and the places they live by being curious about where they live, the stories about those places, 
and then following those curiosities. Jonathan is the former director of the Kauai Teacher Fellowship, a poet, essayist, and also Jonathan writes frequently about education, equity, and the power of curiosity. He enjoys walking, paddling, surfing, building, and spending time with his brilliant wife and young daughters. One of Jonathan's students once wrote, quote, this AP English language composition class is the first class that has truly changed the way my brain is wired to perceive learning. Because of this class, the pressures of trying to do everything the right way have disintegrated and left me with nothing to do but enjoy what is being taught. I've learned that everyone in this class has something to offer, whether it might be insights into their own ways of thinking or their personal experiences that make them who they are. Throughout this work, I've learned to be more perceptive." End quote. What a great testimonial from a former student. Natalie Lalagos is no stranger to the Social Justice and Education Project. She was one of the 24 participants in the Leaders of Social Justice and Education Theory to Practice course in the spring of 2020 when her social justice work blossomed. She is a National Board Certified Spanish teacher at Kealakehe High School on Hawaii Island, who is always looking for opportunities to celebrate multilingualism. She has worked in public education for the last 11 years. She is a Hawaii State Teacher Fellow and received the 2023 Southwest Conference on Language Teacher of the Year Award. With her passion for globalizing her classroom and teaching practice, and being involved in her community, she currently supports new teachers and runs the Seal of Biliteracy program at her school. Off campus, you can find Natalie on her stand-up paddleboard or doing improv at the Aloha Theater just outside Kona. One of Natalie's fellow educators, the proverbial teacher across the hall, wrote the following about her, quote, Natalie is a total package in the sense that she is a visionary, a coordinator, an empath, and a doer. She has high expectations for both her students and fellow educators and leads by example. Not only is she passionate about pushing herself to acquire new knowledge and skills, but she is also extremely hands-on and serious about sharing her wealth of knowledge with others. She is curious about many things and both sincere and respectful when approaching new situations. When Natalie asks you how you are doing, it is not a mere formality. She is truly in tune to every bit of information that is shared." End quote. And now, here's my conversation with Natalie Lalagos and Jonathan Medeiros, two epic and inspiring social justice educators of the year. Jonathan and Natalie, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Mahalo for having me. Really excited to be here. Thank you. Natalie, you and I are going to have a conversation first while Jonathan listens. And then after the first break, he will switch out with you and you will listen to my conversation with him. And after our second break, we will bring you two together for some reflection time. All right. So let's dive into the deep end of the pool. 
So, Natalie, you and Jonathan were recognized by Hana Haoli School with their first annual Hawaii Social Justice Educator Award. And in a blog about this award, Hana Haoli Educator Ger Tao began with the following quote from Parker Palmer's 2017 book, The Courage to Teach. So, quote, If we want to grow as teachers, we must do something alien to academic culture. We must talk to each other about our inner lives. Risky stuff in a profession that fears the personal and seeks safety in the technical, the distant, the abstract, end quote. So talk to me, Natalie, about the inner life of Natalie Lalagos. What can you share with our listeners that both helps them get to know you and your inner life and helps them understand what Palmer's quote means to you as a human and social justice educator? I appreciate the question because I think it's something that we are often, as educators, we have a job that we're supposed to do. It's a very specific job you're supposed to do. And it has been over, you know, a hundred, 200 years contextualizes like this is how you're supposed to do it. Mm. But if we really want to make any changes by default, we cannot do what has been done before. And so we have to break out of that. So the question of the inner life of Natalie Lalagos, first of all, Whew, that is quite the question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think one of the things that drives me is the, the excitement and the desire to be a constant learner, mm-hmm. to always approach things with a novice's mindset, right? Of just like, what can I learn? What can I absorb here? What can I investigate? And having that curiosity is something that drives me in everything that I do, and I think is how I end up doing a lot of the things that I end up doing that are not on my typical schedule, right? I have the seven periods a day and what I'm supposed to teach, but then I have all these other projects and things that I get my hands into. And I think I walk into those things because I say, oh, I'm curious about this. I have a question about this. I want to know more about that. And then I end up doing this project or I end up working with someone doing this thing because it sounded interesting Mm. and it sounded like something that is different than what we've done before. Mm. Wow. And so what are some examples of where, as Gertau writes, the personal and the professional have collided in your teaching, your classroom, with your students, all with the aim of, of furthering the idea of social justice and as much as you feel comfortable sharing, Natalie? Sure. I think the the story that I often tell is that I I got into this work because I believe that every person should be able to decide what they want to do for themselves and they should be able to write the story, their own story and their community's story themselves. And an education is a way to get there. And that, that's that's the the story and what that's rooted in is in my own experience growing up. I definitely had a incredibly privileged education and Mm. I was tracked into advanced classes and things like that. And I had a lot of adults around me who just by default believed in what I was going to go do. And that was super important because there came a time in my life and when I was a teenager, when pretty much a series of like multiple tragedies or challenges or just like complete family disruptions, home life disruptions just happen one after the other after the other. And I was 
really looking after myself from a younger age. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple teachers who were just very much thinking that you're still going to go to college. You're still going to go do these things. And without them, I don't know that I'd be actually having this conversation with you, Josh and Jonathan, right now. And Mm -hmm. when I think about the work that I do with my kids, it's all about how might we give our students access to opportunities such that they have skills and they have bigger dreams and visions of like what the world could be for them and what they could do and how do we create the space for them to access those things because someone did that for me Mm. and yeah Mm. so you know what really kind of trips me out natalie about both the parker palmer quote from his book and also what you've already said already is that it seems like in your journey so far, both as a human over the course of your life and as an educator over these years that you've been in the classroom, that you have come to understand, just as you understood your own challenges in your life, that all kids have all sorts of challenges, and that it's up to us as educators in a socially just classroom to get to know them and to know those things. And I wonder, how do you do that? How do you go about doing that with your students, getting to know them, knowing their challenges, understanding those collisions of the personal and the professional part as they go about being a student, a learner? Mm, I love that question. (laughs) I chuckle a little bit because it's something that I was actually doing today. Mm. (laughs) And when I'm talking with my students over the first few weeks of school, students are, and that's where we're at, right? We're we're in the start of the fourth week of school in Hawaii. And so students are moving classes and shifting and schedules are changing and everyone's all over the place, right? And so things are finally starting to settle now, which is fantastic. I'm getting to actually talk with kids. And today I was in the translation and linguistics class with the students and we were talking about, well, the professor was starting to propose the question of, you know, when in your life have you been a language broker, a youth language broker? Mm. And to hear the students start reflecting both in the the chat that the professor could see, but also in the conversation I could hear and hearing students actually talk about the times in their life where they have acted as language brokers, whether that's through translation or through interpretation and hearing them talk about their families and how language brokering is part of their community and part of their life. And so that's a very small example, but just like asking that one question, which I can't take any credit for, actually. I was mm. just, I was there when the question was asked, but, but hearing that question of like, where are you doing this out in the world? And mm. then that really brought the family and the the friends and the community and the languages. And then there's some academic pieces in there, right? Because we're we are talking about what is interpretation, what is translation, what is language brokering, like what are all these things Mm. and having those kinds of conversations. So that happened about, I'd say an hour and a half before (laughs) I got here. That's great. You know, that's a perfect segue to my next question, Natalie. Kealakehe High School serves approximately 1,400 students every year in grades 9 through 12. And the school is located on the Kona side of Hawaii Island and pull students in from a large geographic area. Many of your students are multilingual, and at least 30% of Hawaii County speaks a language other than English at home. Yet you note that schools only or typically communicate with their students, families, and wider community in English. 
So how did you arrive at the idea of a transformative translation program? How does it work? And in what ways does it elevate social justice in teaching and learning? So I can, I actually have been thinking about this for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So several, I don't at this point, it would have to be six or seven years ago, I started thinking about the idea, but it really became clear when I was sitting down with one of my students and he spoke Spanish and I was talking to him about how the credits worked for graduations. He was a junior and he had transferred from a school from Latin America and we were discussing it and he was just... I think I, I could use the word like floored or surprised at what would be involved in order to essentially meet all the graduation requirements. Not that the student hadn't, didn't have the skills. That was not why he was, he was shocked, but it was, I think, because no one had talked to him about it. And it was, it was this moment where I was like, ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Someone probably assumed the student understood probably assume the student was very clear on like, what do you have to do in order to graduate? And they were not. And it struck me as that there's no reason why it has to be this way and why this sort of information that's so key to navigating our school system has to be, I, I don't know, I, I almost want to use the word like proprietary, like why, yeah. why it has to be like only for a set group of people. Mm -hmm. And of course, I don't think that's anyone's intention, right? It's just there's in any given day in a public school, there's one emergency after the other, after the other of all these things that need to be done. So I don't think anyone intends for it to be that way, but it, it turns out that way. So the way that's where the idea really became crystal clear of like, oh, we could do do this and our students can actually be the one to make the change. And so the program has multiple parts. So it has a component and we have three school sites that are involved on Hawaii Island. And those three schools are all taking one class a semester, uh, a linguistics and translation class through the University of Hawaii Hilo. Mm -hmm. And they're getting dual high school and college credit for their course. And actually doing some really fun translations and, and getting into really interesting conversations about, for example, how do I translate the phrase open house? Do I translate it literally? Will my community <laughs> understand? Right. And these, you know, we go into these conversations, which is actually the translation they just did. Mm. And we talk a lot about why their skills are so valuable, because I think a lot of times when students don't speak English fluently or as their first language, there's this idea that in our schools, you have to speak English and we do not elevate the importance of their other skill, their bilingual skills. So the students get the dual credit in the class. They're also translating some materials for our school. And you know, as we grow, we hope for our larger community so that the students are gaining those skills, but they're also really hopefully changing some of the conversation in our community. Mm. If I can give a brief example, Yes. So we did a, last year, we did a video for our broadcast and the video was describing the class. So it was acting as an advertisement for this linguistics dual credit class. And it was also advertising the seal of biliteracy. Mm. And we had the video done in all the languages of my students in that class. And so the video was in Thai, Tagalog, Ilocano, Spanish, Marshallese, and then it was subtitled in English. Mm. And so this, you know, this video goes out into the community because not only do we want our students to get that college credit, but we want to change the understanding in our community of actually 
a lot of our community is multilingual and this is the norm and it is not it should not be abnormal in any way to hear multiple languages across our community mm. yeah wow. and then the other part just just for the pieces that it paid internship so we we piloted that last semester and i actually i interviewed some interns today and tomorrow who are applying for this semester and they are paid and mentored in their translation work That's great. So what a marvelous example. So I want to come at this from a slightly different angle, Natalie. You were featured in a Hawaii Kids Can Teach for America Hawaii program, which I love, called Spark and Inspire. And in a video made about your work, I heard you make the argument that schools tend to see English language learners as a problem, which by definition means these kids need to be fixed. But they are, in fact, fantastic assets to any school culture if you see them as solutions instead of problems. So while watching this video and hearing this point made, I felt like I was starting to understand the DNA, the genome of Natalie Lalagos. So where others see problems, you see opportunity. Is that a fair statement about you? Well, yeah, that sounds, that sounds, as long as we're not talking about my computer breaking, yes, then it is, I see it as an opportunity, yeah. <laughs> and, and so maybe another example would help our listeners understand how the kids actually come to see themselves as campus assets in their translation work and the way that they're collectively working to bring social justice to the campus by including all speakers of all languages into all parts of campus like like how does that work oh i love that i also want to say that i I don't think all schools see their students with this lens that they are problems but the idea that our students don't speak the language of the the majority that that's something that has to be fixed or worked on right and that that's that's really where the issue is but you know when I when I talk to my interns and I, I ask them you know like why are you applying for this internship the answers I get are really fascinating and most of them will say that this is more than just an internship they are doing this for their community they want people in their community to feel welcome to feel involved to feel invited and to actually hear the students say that either in their applications or in their interviews for the internship is really fascinating that they they see themselves as people who can make a change in their community. And a good example is one of my interns last year. She said, will my name be on the things that I translate that go out into the community? Wow. And I said, I said, oh, that's interesting. I was like, tell me more about that. And essentially it boiled down to she, she wanted people to know that she was doing this work for her community. Mm. She was proud of doing this work for her community. And I actually I had to tell her sadly, no, as a minor doing the translation work, we are not, <laughs> we're not sharing your name broadly with the community. But it was really interesting just to see her ask, does my name go out there? Mm. And a specific example of a translation that we, we did, one of the teachers in my school, she wanted this poster. She teaches a lot of English learners in her class she has and these posters that say 
why I teach because, and, and it lays out the reasons why she does the work that she does. Mm. And she asked if we would translate that into the languages that her students speak, and we did. And this year she printed them out and put them up in her room, these like big, beautiful posters that you say, I teach because, and it, and it in, in all these different languages. And when I asked the students, the interns to reflect on like, what was one of your favorite projects? They say that that was one of them because they say that it's so important that other kids know why their teachers care about them in their languages. Wow. That just gave me total goosebumps, Natalie. That's a fantastic example. I can already picture it in my mind about what that classroom, you know, looks like and all of those signs up there. So one more question, at least for now, about transformative translation. How will you determine or gauge the success of your transformative translation program short-term, long-term? I think there's different ways, right? There's qualitative and quantitative ways. And when I think about this quantitatively, of course, we have some metrics, right? How many students do we want in the program? How we have some longitudinal data we're tracking around their use of translanguaging, both in this class and other classes. We're looking at their confidence level, their belief in the work. And so there's some longitudinal data that we're looking at for for the short term and the long term, right? And seeing how we're impacting kids and their belief about language and then also our wider community. And I think one of the ways that's less quantitative that I will know in the future is if it just becomes the norm at our campus to see things in all different languages. And that's mm. just normal. And that's that's not even a one-off special thing. It's like, no, that's just what we do here at Kila High School. We just, we have everything in, you know, five or six different languages because that's what we do here. We speak all of these languages and some of us actually speak three or four of these languages. And what mm. a gift that is. Mm. I think I will also know because my students, when we did that video, that video that went on broadcast that advertised the class and sealed by literacy, they were at first reluctant and we talked about it. It took, it was a very like long and involved discussion, all of us. And it turned out that they were reluctant to do this video because they thought that this is the end conclusion, that their monolingual peers would laugh at them. Mm. And I think I will know that we've made a difference when, when we see the swap, see that students who speak multiple languages are not afraid of reaction to them speaking multiple languages, that it is actually like idealized that we speak multiple languages. Mm. And, and the last, one of the last ways I think I will know beyond seeing changes in our community, right, and, and the quantitative data around students and their skills, but I will also know that the program has been successful because it will stand, it will stand on its own. It will not be known as Natalie Lalagos is mm. doing this program, right? It will be the name, right? And maybe that name will shift in the years to come. <laughs> maybe I'll listen to this podcast five years from now and I'll be like, yeah, we don't call it that anymore because the name still feels a little bit like in flux as we're finding our feet. But that transformative translations will be the name and it mm. will not be dependent on one individual. Mm, that's awesome. So Natalie, one more question before we go to our first break. One of your students, a young woman named Julianne, wrote a wonderful letter of recommendation on your behalf and talked about a children's book project you implemented that, in Julianne's telling, sounded like gold standard project-based learning with a multilingual theme to me. And Julianne described your guidance during the project as empathic or empathetic, her word. 
which I absolutely loved. So what was this project? What were your collective desired learner outcomes? And in what ways was this project an example of social justice teaching and learning in theory and action? So the project was for my, not for my translation linguistic students, but it was for my Spanish three students. Mm. And their task was to write a bilingual children's book. And the requirements were that the book had to be in Spanish and another language of the student's choice. So that, that could vary depending on the student. And the, it couldn't just be a children's book or a picture book about any old topic actually had to be rooted in themes of intercultural competency, which is, there's many definitions we could apply to that, but right, it's it's, ha- it's having curiosity about the world. It's about being able to recognize your own perspectives and others' perspectives and being able to, you know, work across differences. And it's much more complex than that, but that's not really the focus of your question. So it was about how do we communicate an idea about intercultural global competency to young children? How do you write a bilingual children's book? And then in Julianne's year, how do we also partner with another student who will be illustrating this story? Mm, And so the book had outcomes around language, obviously, like specific around how we use the Spanish language, but also around intercultural and global competency. And it had multiple points though. So your question is like, how does it become... How does it orient towards social justice? Well, the idea is that it's, first of all, not a project just for school. Yeah. I think when we have projects that are just for school, then those have no real meaning and no application. But when it's a project that can impact or can go out into the community, those are the projects that I think leave lasting impacts. For example, Julianne is, is sharing this information. Mm. The point of it was to not only impact the writer, right? Because they really had to think deeply about how do I communicate an idea about global competency to young readers, but also it's hopefully will be impacting the illustrator who's doing this work, which was one of our students in our art classes, advanced Mm. art classes. And then also really thinking about these stories living long-term in our elementary school libraries, right? So that young people can read these stories, perhaps in languages that they speak that Mm. are, that are not, you know, potentially a lot of the students wrote them in Spanish and English, but it could have been in, in any other languages. So how do we also get young readers thinking about global and intercultural competency. How do we get our community thinking about it? And so we're trying to talk with students from high school all the way to elementary school. Wow, that's awesome. You know, Natalie, it it happens almost in every interview, every episode that I do. There comes this moment where I want to go back to high school. And this is one of those moments. I had a miserable experience with languages when I was in high school. And I just feel the energy. I feel the draw of coming back into a situation like that. There's so much purpose. There's so much, you know, sort of deeper learning that's going on in the project that you described. And I also want to just reiterate to our listeners that, again, Julianne described your guidance during the project as empathetic. And I think that really, she said that it just jumps off the page in the letter that she wrote. And I think it bears repeating because of the way that she said it. It sounded just very respectful, almost loving in a way, and the fact that you were understanding her. So that's great. Great example, great project. So, hey, everyone, we have been talking with Natalie Lalagos, a national board certified Spanish teacher and multilingualist at Kealakehe High School on the island of Hawaii. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro, and like you, 
I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back. In this section, we will be talking with Jonathan Medeiros, a national board certified high school teacher who has been teaching and learning about language arts and rhetoric for 17 years with students on Kauai, where he was born and raised. So Jonathan, I am stoked to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. So Jonathan, you, along with Natalie, were also recognized for your social justice pedagogy. So let's have you respond to the same Parker Palmer quote from The Courage to Teach. I'm going to read the quote again for our listeners. If we want to grow as teachers, we must do something alien to academic culture. We must talk to each other about our inner lives. Risky stuff in a profession that fears the personal and seeks safety in the technical the distant, the abstract. So Jonathan, what can you share with our listeners that both helps them get to know you and your inner life and helps them understand how you carry the spirit of Palmer's quote with you each day? Okay. Fair warning, like asking about my inner life is, uh, <laughs> you know, I, like if I take that question literally, I, I almost always think of the kind of constant noise and music that's just in my head. And I, I don't like, like at any given time, you know, you might ask me, what, what are you thinking about? And I won't know until I pause and like talk about it and, and kind of filter all this. That's, that's partially, that's a peek into my literal inner mm-hmm. self. But in, in terms of that idea of being risky, right. Taking those risks, like that's what I bring to my classroom. I literally ask my students and tell them from day one, we're going to be doing difficult things and I'm asking you to take kind of quote unquote academic risks, but it's risky to be a novice in front of other people. It feels uncomfortable. And so, but to move past that discomfort, we all have to kind of accept it. And I, I said this this weekend, I was working with some teachers about writing. We have to kind of seek out the discomfort and the uncomfortable situations because that's where 
a lot of growth can happen. Mm. But if we're too afraid of those things, we're going to kind of put up the walls and hold each other and, and kind of stay away from each other. And, and I think a lot of school can forget about that interpersonal, interior, risky stuff that we have to do first so that we can, quote unquote, learn the academic stuff, which to mm. me is a byproduct of learning about our human selves. Mm. Do you find, Jonathan, that over the years that you've been teaching, which are considerable number of years, that the process of sort of allowing your inner life to collide with the life in the classroom and even fostering the inner lives of your kids and bringing those yeah. inner lives into what's happening in the classroom gets a little bit easier because you kind of know a little bit more about how to do it and how it works? Yeah, I mean... I suppose it gets easier. I always get uncomfortable and re-nervous and scared every time I'm about to do something. So I, on one hand, I know like <laughs> I'm getting better and I'm continuing to do this and I'm, I've had success, but I still get worried like because I have these ideas like Natalie was talking about before. I'm curious about lots of things and I see connections and I have questions and then I have this idea, oh, I want to try that out. And it feels a little bit like, I'm nervous about doing that. And when I was a younger teacher, I might not pursued that idea because it made me too nervous. Mm. But now I guess that I, I know to go there now. And also that helps with my students. I'm asking them to do uncomfortable things. I'm going to do them too. We're all going to be doing this kind of work. Mm. And that helps with that kind of stuff. I mean, it's literally like the first six to eight school we're living with Puanani Burgess, building the beloved community. And that's, this is all she talks about is getting to know each other on a personal level by telling uncomfortable stories about ourselves, our communities and our gifts. Because if we don't know each other that way, mm. we're going to shut down. We're not going to listen to each other and move forward. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can just explain to our listeners who are not familiar with Puanani Burgess, who is she and, and what is she to you? What is her role in your life? Yeah. Puanani Burgess is a kumu to me. She's a guide and a teacher. She's from Waianae on Oahu and now calls herself, a, like she's like a community activist and she's a community builder and she does this kind of work. She's in her maybe late 70s or early, early 80s now, but she had studied law and she became an activist for Hawaiian rights because she wanted to kind of solve the problems that she saw in her communities. And some of those problems were houselessness and other kinds of suffering. But she saw the answer in Martin Luther King's idea of building community. She borrowed that quote from Martin Luther King Jr., building the beloved community. Mm -hmm. So she sees the answer to healing communities as first getting to know each other, the stories of our gifts. So she does this work with each other where you literally sit in a circle and you share your stories with each other so that you become more bonded together. And then as a unit, now you're, you care for each other, you understand each other, and maybe you can move forward healthier and do more positive work, right? Yep, yep, that's awesome. So Jonathan, in the papers you filed for Hana Haoli's social justice program and award, you wrote the following, and I quote, we need to foster the desire these young people have so that they can create a stable group of dedicated social justice-focused educators who come back to teach where they grew up. 
this project will help address these needs, end quote. So here's a multi-part question. What is the future Teachers of Hawaii Club you and your students are building together? And tell us more about your understanding of the meaning of coming back to teach in one's home community as you did. And what is going to make this program grow and scale, Jonathan? Like, what are the outer edges of what this program can aspire to? So in its simplest form, it's literally a club of students that have a shared interest. Really, they have a shared interest in student advocacy and social justice and how that might cross or come together with education. Mm -hmm. So becoming a teacher who has that in mind or learning as a student about schools that teach other students with advocacy and social justice in mind, right? Mm. We spent last year, I mean, it's a very new, new club, so we're maybe 18 months old, and we spent last year trying to learn from other experts, like Talking Story, and we invited people, comments about, you know, your answers, your ideas to this nexus that I just briefly talked about. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about student advocacy and education and social justice. So we learned from a bunch of amazing people from across the continent and across Hawaii, current teachers, former teachers, right? So to hear what their perspectives were. And then another part of this club is action-oriented. So the students themselves go out and they do other work. So they they went last spring to share some of their ideas with principals and teacher leaders from across Kauai at a conference. So that's mm. part of the hope is that they're going to continue to kind of bounce back and forth, learn from others, and then figure out who they want to share that with and how. So that's a perfect segue then in terms of how you're addressing social justice issues with your future teachers club. And part of that is to bring in guests whose voices are powerful in moving all of us towards a more just, equitable, and fair playing field, most especially in education. So there's one Hawaii educator you brought into your club virtually named Sarah Milianta Laffin who has worked extensively with young learners to advocate against something called period poverty. So what would our listeners have heard if we had been there to listen in on that gathering, Jonathan? Like what social justice needle was potentially moved in that moment? Having Miss Millie there, as she asked the students to call her, was amazing. So she introduced herself, but then She really focused on, you know, she passes a lot of the power off to her students. So she talked about the whole process that she went through with her middle school students and talked a lot about the power that students have if they are able to kind of clarify their voices, believe in their voices, and share their voices with other people. And that quote-unquote important people will listen to them Mm. because that's one of the misconceptions I think a lot of students feel as if they don't have the power to disrupt or to change because after all they're just students 
And so that was really, I guess, the social justice needle being pushed for them. They were kind of blown away by the fact that these 12 and 13 year olds with Miss Millie, you know, did all this work and they wrote a law and they suffered through all this difficulties and struggles and it didn't pass the first time, but they came back and they persevered. Like all of that was very moving to them to hear, oh, wow, we can actually do something like on a Mm. big scale, right? Mm. I think what I love about that story is that in many ways, what Miss Millie was demonstrating is really the process of student empowerment, ultimate student agency, and coming to some sort of understanding, Jonathan, about the efficacy of your work. When you actually make your way through all the setbacks and all the challenges and the highs and the lows, and then at some point, you know, legislation is passed. Oh my God, Uh it's like direct evidence of the work that you're doing. And in my mind, that feels like social justice defined. Does that feel like that to you? Yes, it does. And in a couple of ways. In one way, because that particular law is about equity and justice for, you know, more than half of the people that live with us and go to school with us, that they everybody deserves access to period products, right. you know, just the way we just do. That's a human right. And so that's a social justice issue. But also the other part of it, which is what bleeds over into the rest of my belief system and to my teaching Mm. is that a lot of this social justice work is about the students understanding that they have a voice and that they deserve to be in the rooms and be and to not be invisible people in the stories that mm. they're part of this like who's making the decisions about these students lives is it people that look like them that come from the same background as you asked about home before is it people that grew up on Kauai and have come back here or, you know what I mean? So that's, that's another part of the social justice angle here. Yeah, that's awesome. So Jonathan, we're going to make a hard left turn here, still kind of connected to the, the social justice angle. I love asking guests big 30,000 foot meta questions that they have on their minds. And you shared with me a simple one, which is why do we keep using letter grades? So great question, Jonathan. (laughs) So here's my question. So why do we, and why is this, Jonathan, a social justice issue? And please don't hold back like you usually do. And listeners, (laughs) I'm kidding here because Jonathan rarely holds back on anything. So why do we, Jonathan? Why do we? Oh man, I don't know why we still do. I mean, we use letter grades because that's the way we do it, right? We're in systems get this inertia and we have to use letter grades because what are they going to do if they want to get into college? You know, you kind of pass it off on, well, somebody else needs it, or we've always done it this way. And it's also the easiest way to communicate quote unquote learning, but I, I clearly mistrust them. Mm. Well, I'm interested in the social justice element to this. In what ways is it not just In what ways are grades simply not just? If we think about the traditional zero to 100 scale that we break apart into those letter grades and we use it in the traditional manner, if you stop to look at it for a little while, you start to realize you're grading students' behaviors and you're often grading things that are Mm. out of their control. And so you think about things like 
just the fact that an F is 59% of that scale and yeah. all the other grades are 10%. If a student messes up on one thing, which they should because they're novices, I mean, this is all backwards, right? If I'm telling you up front, you're not good at this thing, that's why we're here. So you're going to be not good at it at first. But if a student gets that F up front, it's going to be very difficult because that carries a huge amount. There's a lot of gravity with that F compared to the other letter grades, right? Yep. And that can lead to kids, quote unquote, giving up. But then you also start to think about other things like penalties off for late work, or you put your name on mm. the left side of the paper instead of the right. And I'm not making these things up. Like these are things that are common and people don't blink an eye yeah. at in some classrooms, right? Or extra credit if you bring in supplies or food, etc. And all of those things end up rewarding or punishing things that have nothing to do with learning mm. and have more to do with behavior. And again, some of that's out of a student's control. It's not my student's fault that you know they're houseless and they can't get to school on right. time or never know who's picking them up. So I shouldn't be grading them on their punctuality. Yeah. That's unjust. Yeah. yeah, understood. So let me just ask one follow-up question We've before we go to our second break, Jonathan. So I want to bring it back to the future teachers of Hawaii Club. Maybe briefly just describe to us how you're having conversations with these students who have joined the club about these kinds of issues like grades and standards and standardized testing and, you know, all, all sorts of things that are difficult topics for people what are you thinking about, even though you're only 18 months into it, how are you kind of approaching that with them? Yeah. Well, we kind of have Socratic discussions about these topics. We'll have like question-based, curiosity-based discussions about grades. So, you know, we might look at an article from Harvard Press or some other academic source mm. about these issues that I was just talking about. Mm. And then I'll let just let them talk because part of this is they need to chew on these ideas. What does this mean to you, student? You're yeah. the student, right? Like, so how do you see this impacting you now that you've read some academics perspective on it? Mm. And the hope is that as the club keeps moving forward, as we keep learning with other experts and they get to go on this, this service learning trip in a few weeks and hopefully that, that develops even more ideas that that'll kind of continue to spin off into other things. They'll bring that home. They'll write papers about it. They'll figure out ways that they want to, maybe they want to do something about grades at Kauai high school because of a conversation that they've had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and before we get a break, Jonathan, I'll just share with our listeners that the reference you made a second ago, I am just so excited for September 7th, which is, a date shortly after we're going to release this episode where your students are coming to my island, Oahu, and at least part of their program is going to be an all-morning retreat with four previous podcast guests. And that's going to be a blast. And we're going to have so much Socratically to talk about during that day. So I love that. That's great stuff. So Everyone, you have been listening to Jonathan Medeiros, a national board certified high school teacher who has been teaching and learning about language arts and rhetoric for 17 years with students on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. 
The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Hey everyone, we are back, this time with both Jonathan and Natalie, two nationally board certified teachers and now social justice educator awardees. So Natalie, what did you hear from Jonathan in the previous segment that got you thinking or moved you or inspired you or seems to require comment in some way? Like, in what ways do you see your teaching practice and his teaching practice connected, but you can take this in any direction that you want. You know, I, I don't think I'm going to get your words exactly right, Jonathan, but the you said something about how when you feel something that you're thinking about tackling in the classroom or something like that, and maybe you feel a little bit nervous about it, or, or I don't think those are exactly the words you used, but mm. in that general direction, you know, and you were talking about how early on in your teaching career, you might not have gone that way. And I was nodding and I was like, absolutely. Like there are times where when I think about doing something, I'm like, ooh, that might get people having some feelings and that might be a little risky and ooh, I don't know. And whenever that happens though, that's when I go, oh, well then I have to do it. Like yeah. if, if there's that feeling of like, oh, maybe someone's going to have some kind of feelings, but those are what we need. Like that's where the real learning is. Mm -hmm. And of course I have to be really thoughtful about how I do it, right? But whenever that feeling comes up that you described, I'm like, oh, now I have to do it. But then sometimes I feel this desire to be like, well, maybe I just, I'll do it next year. Like, well, maybe I just won't. But that's a privilege for me to be able to opt out of difficult conversations mm -hmm. and to say like, well, I just won't do that mm -hmm. and I'll stay safe over here. Mm -hmm. But that's not the work. So true. Yes. I 100% agree with you. And I am thinking all these thoughts of like, yes, that's, those are the conversations we need to have. Right. And, and that is privilege to be able to say, no, I don't want to have that conversation. And also there's, I know that many of my students are unaware that many of their classmates don't have that same privilege. So that's part of the work too, right? Like I, that's why we have to go there sometimes. Mm. Yeah. I love that, Jonathan. And, and, you know, it, to follow up on what Natalie was saying while you were talking about some of those feelings, Jonathan, 
you know, I was having sort of PTSD moments almost of moments when I was a teacher where I literally was, my stomach was knotted up as I headed into class because I was about to try something that I thought might be risky and not knowing whether it was going to blow up on me or not. But inevitably, those situations just created more community and more bonding with the students, more relationship with the students, which is probably what's happened with you as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was also just going to add on, like, I also, I know I hold a privileged identity and I am in a state where I can have these conversations. I mean, we have colleagues across the country who can't, can't talk about race in their classroom. They can't talk about, about things that are everyday experiences for our kids. And so like, I, I I am privileged in many ways. And so like, it is a responsibility to do this. So true. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So Jonathan, what did you hear from Natalie in her segment that got you thinking or moved you or inspired you? Like, in what ways do you see your work with the future teachers of Hawaii Club and her transformative translation program perhaps tied together as if braided with sweetgrass to reference a book you Thank both you. loved? <laughs> yeah. Loved it. Yes. So much. It was like I was so excited, especially when you were talking about language, Natalie, and the power of language and you use the word proprietary, like it, when things are all in English, it makes the information there proprietary and it leaves other people out. And that's something that we always talk about in my classes and also then in the Future Teachers Club, like who has access, who's being listened to, and access meaning like through their language, right? Literally the quote on my board today is from Asetu Jango's poem, give your daughters difficult names. And it says, not every word needs an English equivalent in order to have significance. I'm done folding myself up. And Puanani Burgess talks about the similar idea of like, I have these, I have to use these different names to get access to different places. Mm -hmm. And so many of my students, they speak a different language at home, right? And so just that notion of my ideas are not as valuable because they're not in the proprietary language of the system. So that really excited me to hear you talk about the work that you're doing there, because that's just like always on my mind in my work here. Yeah, the only reason why we do that is to keep supporting the systems. Well, the reason why we enforce that is to support the systems. The reason why our students do it is because for necessity, as the system stands right now, have to do it. Which brings up a whole other question of like, how do we actually teach them how to navigate the system and dismantle the system? And that's like a whole separate conversation. But yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. So a few more questions. These are actually separate questions for the both of you before we finish this awesome conversation today. Natalie, you shared with me a wonderful and lengthy list of books that have great meaning in your life, including books like The Little Prince, 100 Years of Solitude, and Braiding Sweetgrass. And the book you listed that really jumped out at me, which I did not know but immediately ordered, is titled Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn. So briefly, Natalie, what is this novel about? And in what ways do you carry its meaning with you in your metaphorical Natalie Lalagos backpack as you teach and guide and mentor your students and live your life? 
Oh my gosh, Josh, you should write the journal prompts that I respond to to reflect <laughs> on my practice. Goodness. Uh, no, I say that I say that lovingly. So the book, which you all should definitely read, it takes place on the Big Island of Hawaii. The writer is born and raised on the Hamakua coast of the Big Island. And it tells the story of something miraculous that happened to one of the family's children at a very young age. And, and I, I won't tell you because it's actually like a quintessential part of the book. So I will leave that for you to explore. Okay. And something absolutely miraculous that happens to the child. And then how this child is then thought of as someone who is going to go on and do great things. And there's two other siblings and it tells the family story from the time of like young childhood all the way up through the children becoming adults. And I think it sits with me for a couple of reasons. First of all, when I think about the time that I read it, I read it in, I believe, the spring of 2021. Mm. And so when I read the book, it was, first of all, a, a, a difficult you know, time if you think about where you were in the spring of 2021 and what we were all doing or not doing, right, as the case might be, if we remember the absence of something more. And one of the things that struck me about the book was actually just about how it was written. So the book is written with a balance of English and Hawaiian and pidgin in it. Mm. And it is done in such a way that the language is not othered. The languages are blended beautifully. Oftentimes when you read a book that's written in English, if there's words in other languages, they're italicized, right? Mm. And it really others the language, like textually. And this book does not do that. It blends the languages so beautifully and the stories of the place are all woven into one. And I think I carry that with me, even just, mm. there's way more to this book, but I know you're about to ask other questions for Jonathan, so I don't want to keep talking, but mm. there's more to this book, but even just thinking about like how it was written and how language and story were treated, not as othered, but how you could have multiple languages blending together to tell a story and all of them are equally valid and important mm. is really valuable, as is the fact that the story was written by someone born and raised in the community that the story's about. That's awesome, Natalie. And, and as a multilingualist, which was a word I did not know prior to my prep for today, it just seems perfectly in keeping. And, and the book has actually already arrived already. And so as soon as I finish Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead, I'm going to dive into this one, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you for that. So Jonathan, I'm going to quote Hana Haoli's blog again, the one that announced your Social Justice Award. So, quote, he believes that curiosity kills boredom and that if you change all of your mistakes or regrets, you'll erase yourself, end quote. So, like a hungry fish, a nearshore papillo, Jonathan, I am going to take the bait. It feels to me like there is a whole lot going on in this quote. So, how does curiosity kill boredom? And how do I, a guy prone to regrets, avoid erasing myself. I have a, it's a silly song, but I have a Harvey Danger quote on my board that says, if you're on my whiteboard in my classroom, it says, if you're bored, then you're boring. And it started as a knee-jerk reaction to that common apathetic teenager thing where 
I'm bored. And my response is, well, you're choosing to be bored, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you are curious, if you can cultivate that curious mindset that Natalie talked about earlier, you'll never be bored. And I view that as like having my time stolen. If I go to a place and I don't love the way it's set up, I would have done it differently. This is not my favorite presenter or what have you. Mm. If I then say I was bored for two hours and I learned nothing in my head, I let somebody steal two hours from my life. And so I'm not going to do that. Mm. So I've, I try to bring my curiosity wherever I am. And I, I try to bring that to my students too. So that's what I mean about that. Like if we're curious, we won't be bored, but also a good, healthy kind of boredom leads to curiosity. Like, mm. and I wouldn't call it boredom. Maybe I would call it not numbing our minds with other things, right? Mm-hmm. If you sit outside and you've got no phone, after a while, you'll become curious about the grass you're sitting on, and it'll be an amazing hour. Mm. One of the things that I've begun to realize here as I get close to my 65th birthday is that I have regrets about things that are in the distant past. But somehow mm-hmm. or other, Jonathan, I've stopped regretting anything that's happened in the near past. Well done. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly how that worked, but somehow I, I just don't seem to regret anything right now. And maybe some sort of transition has happened, and I wonder what you think about that. That's cool. I mean, I have regrets, and I often, especially right after I do something, like, oh my God, did that go? What are they thinking about? Did that go well? Did they like it? I guess that's more like self-doubt. But what I mean is like, if we looked back at our lives, there are moments we could all pick out and be like, yeah, I don't love the way I looked in that situation, right? Or, but the point is, if you could go and change everything, you wouldn't be standing right here where you are right now. Natalie wouldn't be in her classroom with her students creating this amazing translation program if she had the ability to go back and erase all of her regrets because she would not exist, right? Those experiences make us who we are and teach us, you know, how to be here. Yeah, fair point. And I'll just share really quick with you, Jonathan, with both of you, a quick story. Speaking of boredom, when I was in high school, which was a very long time ago in the 70s, someone gave me a little wooden mortar and pestle that wasn't much bigger than my thumb. And basically, you use it to make bird noises and by just, you know, rotating the pestle inside the mortar. And I used to sit outside one of the buildings on Punahou's campus. And every time I wasn't in class, I would just sit there and do this, these bird sounds under my shirt and try to get the people coming out of the building to look up into the trees and see the birds. Yeah. And I look back That's on that awesome. and I have zero regrets about doing that. That, that. that was just like me trying to figure out how to deal with boredom and coming up with a, with a grand goal of making every single person coming out of the building look up in the trees. So there you go. All right. So, Natalie, I love to end guest interviews by having my guests shout out or bear witness to a giant upon whose shoulders they stand. So that guide, coach, mentor, advisor, and colleague who helped you move forward on your life's journey is someone named Amy Halbert, who taught math next door as you began your teaching career teaching Spanish. So in what ways do you carry Amy and her spirit and her teaching with you day in and day out? Amy was someone who modeled for me how to continuously pursue things that are new and difficult, 
And I spent a lot of time in her room, which was right next door. And I would walk over and sit in a desk and we would talk. You know, she was the kind of person who, when you, you had an idea, this wasn't how Amy would say it, but it's how I've like kind of taken Amy. And now I've like, she's a part of me. When there's a new idea, you go, ooh, mm. right? You're like, ooh, like that sounds interesting. Like, let's dig in a little bit further. Mm. So I just, I really want to mahalo Amy for instilling that in me from the very first year of teaching. That's awesome, Natalie. And, and just for all of our listeners who are educators, there is a teacher across the hall from you who would probably love that you reach out to them. And that's really, that's kind of the whole thing right there. It's just building those relationships, right? And those people can turn out to be very special in your life. So that's great. So Jonathan, you shared that the giant upon whose shoulders you stand is your wife, Erin Medeiros, who was a former guest on the show and is a brilliant educator and writer and community member. So in what ways, Jonathan, do you carry Aaron's spirit and thinking as you go about your day-to-day -day work as an educator and wayfinder on planet Earth? Aaron is an amazing partner. And I alluded to this earlier that I don't know what I think about something until I talk about it. I don't know exactly what's going on in my head until I, that's how I process the world. And so that's what Aaron has this ability to make, to first of all, just be that person who is like just also curious and engaged and brilliant, but also has this knack for like the kind of clarity that eludes me sometimes. Yeah. So I have these conversations literally with her. I'm lucky enough that she still lives here and is my partner, but I also have those conversations in my head, you know, throughout the day. It strikes me, Jonathan, that in some ways she might be your chat GPT, <laughs> that you write it out and then she processes it. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, that's actually, that's funny. We were just talking about that last night. I, I said that, <laughs> I made some joke. I was like, I should, people should just start using chat GPT instead of putting all of this burden on their spouses or their, <laughs> but it wouldn't work the same. She's much more intelligent. Yeah, that's awesome. And I encourage our listeners to go back into their podcast app and scroll back quite a ways. I did a previous episode, of course, with you, Jonathan. And then shortly after that, I actually did a separate episode with Aaron. And that was just fantastic. One of my favorite episodes for sure. So Natalie Lalagos and Jonathan Medeiros, thank you for being on the show. I truly wish I was back in school and you two were my teachers. Thank you so much for this time today. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. 
please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.